From Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm ATME producer, Zen Rogers. This is Podcast in Place, Youth Stories from Quarantine, a series about youth in Alaska during the COVID-19 pandemic. This time last year, the Anchorage School District was struggling to get kids back to in-person learning for the fall semester, while coronavirus cases surged in the community. They ended up holding off on their reopening plans for the fall, but by the spring semester of 2021, they had phased pre-K through 12th grade back to the classroom. Now a new school year is about to begin and our community is once again struggling with high case counts due to the Delta variant. But ASD is pressing forward with their plan to bring all students back on August 17th. We are attempting to open this school year as normal as possible, right? With it, you know, only those restrictions in place that we think really are going to keep kids from spreading the virus. That's Marty Lang. He's a director of secondary education for ASD who oversees the high schools and our guests for this episode. A few years ago, he was the principal at Eagle River High when at me senior producer Daisy Carter attended school there. Carter spoke with Lang about what the upcoming school year will look like, the district's decision to have all students and teachers wear masks, and the public's response to that, and much more. They spoke on August 10th, 2021. All right, so um, how are you this morning? I feel weird calling you Marty, so I'm just going to keep calling you Mr. Lang. You can call me whatever you want, but feel free to try on Marty, and that's just fine with me. It takes a while to break the habit I get. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's a busy week. We're excited for staff to be coming back here soon and students the week after, but um, doing well. Last time we spoke to you, it was in November of 2020. And uh, here we go again with this interview, um, you know, about starting school up and a mixed, like another, unfortunately, another COVID spike, another like rise in COVID cases. Um, back then, did you think that we would... Um, you know, have another spike like this around the same time? Well, I think by last November, uh, when we last spoke, we had been through enough changes um, that we had all learned in these roles not to predict too far out, right? Trying to look in our crystal ball and look all the way from last November to this next school year, we just knew we didn't have enough information, you know, to really predict what that might look like now. Um, we've really just been trying to stay, you know, present with the situation as it currently exists in Anchorage, um, you know, taking any new guidance that might be coming from the federal government, from the CDC, from the state, from changes in, in local municipal er emergency orders, and then really as a district respond, you know, to the current situation on the ground. Um, it would be great if we could just develop one plan, you know, for a whole year. But we know even going into this year that there's definitely the possibility that things are going to change in two weeks or four weeks or two months, you know. And so, um, no, I didn't last year spend much time thinking about the start of this year, although when we left the school year in the spring and, and we're heading into the summer, um, I was definitely very optimistic that we would be able to start this year 
in a much more normal situation and posture than we did last year. And while that isn't 100% true at the moment, um, there's still a large part of this year that does feel a lot more normal, and I'm excited about that. Last year, there were a lot of different um, plans to keep up with educated kids through the pandemic, through online learning, constantly changing, reopening plans, and mitigation strategies. Eventually, students were back in person in the spring. Looking back at 2020 and 2021 school year, how do you think ASD did academically? I know I had just listened to your um, to the interview in November, and it was um, it was kind of I guess you, you didn't say that, that you know ASDs were like excelling as they usually do. So I'm kind of just curious how how they did you know now being past the 2020-21 school year. Sure. And that's a really important question, you know, that all of us are asking. We're, we're trying to look back now and say, you know, we had to make some decisions. They were difficult decisions. They weren't ideal in most situations. We didn't always have the tools and resources immediately to put in place some of the things that we needed. Um, but we did the best that we could. And so now we're looking back and trying to assess, well, how did students do in that environment? Um, so that we can predict for this school year how we need to support kids um, if there are, is learning loss that's evident or if there's just something that they're going to need in order to transition into the next school year. And so um, it's really a mixed bag is, is the answer that we're, we're coming to. You know, some students did just fine academically uh, in a virtual environment. Some kids thrived in a virtual environment. Um, they had all the resources at home that they needed. They had all the support. Um, and then we had other students who just didn't have access to those same resources or uh, virtual learning um, just really was not a good fit for them. And they didn't do as well. Um, and so, you know, we're we've got kids who I think discovered that they're good virtual learners and they may opt to stay virtual. Um, for those who weren't, we're going to do everything we can to get them back into a normal in-person environment and try to do some of that catch up growth. Uh, to, to remediate some of the learning loss that we know they had last year. I'll throw some numbers at you just kind of like broadly. Normally, when we look back on uh, previous school years, right? So if we go back to the 2018-2019 school year, the pre-pandemic year, about 25% of all middle and high school students failed one or more classes, that's a fairly standard percentage between 20 and 25% of kids might fail one class a year or more than that. Last year, um, that percentage was in the mid thirties. So we know a lot more students struggled and you know, that's, that's concerning, right? So that is part of our work in this year is making sure that we support those kids who didn't thrive in an online environment. And we've already started that, right? So this summer we offered um, a much, much larger summer school experience for kids. Um, normally we offer um, just, uh, just for high school, four weeks in June. This year we offered um, a session in June for both middle school and high school and a session in July. And normally that high school site, you know, we just maybe have three locations in the summer for high school students to make up uh, failing grades. This year we had six for both middle and high school. So we really scaled up our summer programming. So immediately kids who weren't successful last year had an in-person opportunity with a real teacher in the classroom, there guiding them. So hopefully they could do some of that catch up before this year even began. 
and uh, we'll continue um, to support them into the school year. My sister did her last um, year and a half of college. Um, she already graduated, Jasmine. <laughs> she already graduated um, college. Um, and she did her last year, you know, virtual. So I was just wondering how how students, you know, see how seniors, you know, graduated and, you know, what the graduation rate was. Uh, we won't have a graduation rate for um, last year until um, the state releases that information here, um, probably in the next month or so. Um, and then we have to do a little bit of fact checking on that data, a little bit of cleanup. And so usually it's late September or October when we officially release the graduation rate for the previous year. Um, there's a pretty um, complicated definition for how all that gets worked out because we begin tracking kids their freshman year, they become part of a cohort and we have to follow the federal guidance for those students to see how many make it in four years, how many make it in five years. There's rules around when they transfer schools or districts or states. And so it is uh, more complicated than just uh, how many kids walked across the stage. Um, so I don't have real clear numbers yet, uh, but preliminary indication is we did okay on the graduation side of things, right? We didn't see a huge drop in the number of kids who were able to um, graduate on time. Um, schools definitely focused a lot of resources on seniors to make sure that they were able to be successful in their courses last year, even though they were virtual for three quarters of the year, so that they still had that opportunity to, to graduate on time and move on to whatever that next post-secondary opportunity is for them. Yeah, because I had been wondering about how, you know, seniors, you know, not just the stress of, you know, being a senior and what you're going to do after um, after high school, but also the stress of, you know, a pandemic and, um, you know, maybe not graduating. So I'm happy that you guys had that, I guess, extra push for, you know, for, for kids to graduate during the pandemic. And it wasn't a 100 percent success story. You know, we know we have students who um, for a whole variety of reasons um, just weren't able to do school last year and dropped out. And now we'll have to do some really intentional outreach efforts to try to get those students reconnected for to their school. You know, we had students, we've heard a few stories where, you know, mom and dad lost their job, but the student had a job, you know, and they're a senior in high school and they were the sole income winner for their family at that point. And so school just wasn't the priority in that situation for those students. So we, we're hoping we can really identify which kids didn't graduate, which kids um, are, you know, not showing up this fall, and then do some intentional outreach to try to get them reconnected with their schooling. Can you talk a little bit about ASD schools reopening and what new protocols are put into place to combat the spread of COVID-19 at this time? Yeah, you bet. Um, we learned a lot last year about, you know, what seemed to work um, well in terms of protecting kids. And, you know, we certainly still had positive cases, but, you know, really proud of the fact that we had very little secondary transmission throughout last year. So we know a lot of the practices that we put in place did help keep kids safe. We are attempting to open this school year as normal as possible. Right. With, a, you know, only those restrictions in place that we think really are going to keep kids from, um, you know, spreading the virus, um, especially with the Delta variant that's now present in our community. Um, and so on most things, we are kind of returning to our normal 
pre-pandemic posture with one really kind of notable exception. And that is um, the superintendent announced uh, about a week and a half ago that we're going to return to school requiring masks indoors for both staff and students. And we think that's probably the, the best protective factor uh, to keep kids safe into the school year. We're still going to try to maintain uh, three to six foot distance between kids wherever possible. Um, but a lot of the other kind of routines of school are going to look a lot like they did before the pandemic. So we're going back to a six period day at high school, a seven period day in middle school. Uh, kids will be in school five days a week. Um, last year, the school day was an hour shorter. This year, it'll be kind of back to normal. Um, so the six and a half hour school day, instead of a five and a half hour school day, kids will have the opportunity to eat lunch in the middle of the day, uh, in the cafeteria. Um, it'll be open campus again for, uh, folks at high school, which I think will be, uh, exciting and, and well-received by our juniors and seniors who can drive off campus, you know, at lunch, um, sports are, uh, resuming, um, with spectators, um, and no limit on spectators currently, um, so, you know, a lot of those things are going to feel a little bit more uh, normal. Um, keep using that word normal, um, although we'll have the mask piece in place to start. And, you know, like we talked about previously, um, conditions can always change. Right. And we're going to have to respond to those conditions. Hopefully conditions will improve and we'll be able to lift even the, the mask restriction at some point this year. Um, but part of what we do out of our office is, is kind of watch the situation and work with the superintendent and determine if it's okay to ease up on restrictions or do we need to kind of add some additional ones? And, and we'll do that as the year goes along, just like we did last year. Yeah. I know last year um, you said that, um, or I think in maybe in, earlier in this interview, you said that students, if they did contract COVID, they would stay, um, they would be quarantined for about 14 days plus all the students where the students that they maybe got in contact with would be, you know, advised to get tested or would be also required to do quarantine for 14 days. Is there any new changes to that protocol? Yeah, no, that's a really important question to ask because a lot of things have changed. So if we have a student who um, has tested positive or who is symptomatic and, you know, has a lot of the kind of standard symptoms that we associate with COVID-19. And so we can sort of assume that maybe they're going to test positive. Um, then the, the, what schools have grown accustomed to doing is, is contact tracing, right? So they'll start to look for what students or staff were in proximity to that student in the classroom, uh, if they were riding the bus, in the cafeteria at lunch, on a sports team, if they practice together. And so a couple things haven't changed. So I'll walk through the guidance from the point a student develops symptoms or tests positive, um, even if they're asymptomatic, we go back 48 hours from that point, right? That has been determined sort of be, to be the potential infectious period for the for that student. And so we would look at and do our contact tracing in that 48 hour window to see were they within three feet of anybody. Now, if they were and that individual was properly masked, here's the big change from last year. Last year, anybody within six feet had to go into a quarantine period and weren't allowed to stay in school. Now the new CDC guidance says, as long as they're properly masked, even if they're within three feet of that individual, they don't have to be identified as close contacts. They do not have to quarantine. 
right? So we'll still notify them that they potentially were exposed to COVID-19 by somebody who tested positive. We'll encourage them to watch for symptoms and potentially to get tested, but they don't have to take you know, 10 or 14 days off of school. Um, they're allowed to remain in the school environment. Um, so we use that kind of three foot rule um, and it's a cumulative. They have to be within three feet for more than 15 minutes in a 24 hour period. And if they meet that standard and they were unmasked, then they would still have to go into quarantine unless they're vaccinated. And we know a lot of our secondary students, well, really all of them are 12 or older, have the opportunity to be vaccinated. And if they are, we still encourage them to test. That's the CDC guidance, but they don't need to quarantine either. So we're really hopeful that this year with those changes in CDC guidance, um, that a lot fewer students are going to have to quarantine and miss being in class in person. I also wanted to ask about teachers that, you know, we talked a lot about the students, but also how, how are the teachers, you know, going to react if they were exposed to that? Is it the, is it the same sort of mandate um, or requirements as the students? You know, it's really funny that you asked that question because it's not. The CDC made an exemption for students because they really were trying to make sure that schools could remain open and we could do in-person schooling. So they, they changed the rule to say for students, if they're properly masked, um, even if they're within three feet for more than 15 minutes of a person who's known to be positive with COVID-19, they don't have to quarantine. That does not apply to staff. It's students only. So if staff are within six feet, masked or unmasked for 15 minutes or longer, then that individual would have to quarantine um, according to CDC guidance. Um, so, you know, we're encouraging folks again to social distance wherever possible. Um, and, you know, to, to be cognizant of that so that hopefully they limit the number of folks that they might be in real close proximity to um, and then potentially have to quarantine. Clear as mud? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is hard. It's hard to track with. There's all these little nuances and we spend a lot of our time kind of talking with our health services folks and the health department trying to make sense of all this and um, then try to put clear guidance out to our schools. And even just trying to explain it to you, I realize I don't think I'm being very clear because it, it gets really, um, it get, can get convoluted. And so we work with our principals through all of those situations. We have a team that kind of looks at it and says, okay, what are the current rules? What do we know about the situation? And then we make decisions as a group so that you know we're consistent and we're making sure that we're applying the right guidance. Are there any repercussions? Because I know that looking back and looking at these questions or, or thinking about these questions, I know some students um, who would not want to wear masks or who would refuse to wear masks. So I was just wondering, um, would there be any um, repercussions um, well, let me talk a little bit about our experience last year first, and then I'll answer that question more directly. So, you know, last spring, that was a concern when we brought folks back in person, you know, masks were required for students. And, you know, there were some teachers who were nervous, like, were they going to have to be the mask police all the time, right? Were kids really going to fight them on, you know, wearing masks in schools? And, you know, what we found is that largely wasn't an issue. I think people who came back were pretty excited to be back and, and were willing to, um, to wear a mask if that was kind of what was required of them to be able to be back in a classroom with their teacher, with their friends, you know, back playing sports, all of those things. We, we, we had really a pretty successful spring on that front. 
Um, we know it's gotten a little more controversial, right? Right now, it's a little bit more political in our community. The last school board meeting, there were a lot of folks there to testify who were upset um, at you know the district stance that we're going to require masks in school this year. And so we know it's a little bit more politically charged. Not everybody um, uh, agrees with that decision. So, you know, we may have students who show up who are a little bit more defiant this year, um, who, because of their politics at home, because of the conversation with their folks, they really don't want to wear a mask. Um, you know, we're going to have conversations with those folks. We're not going to immediately say, hey, you're not wearing a mask, you're suspended, right? That, that, that's not where we start. You know, we start with, no, these are the expectations and rules if you're going to attend in person in the district. Uh, we'll remind them what those rules are. We'll provide them a mask. We'll invite them to put the mask on and return to the environment. Um, if we have, you know, folks who continue to insist that they're not going to wear a mask beyond that, then we'd certainly involve their parents and have a conversation about what options exist in the district virtually, um, you know, so that they can still do their schooling, um, but have the freedom not to wear a mask because masks are required in, in buildings to, for in-person learning. That's great that, you know, students didn't, I guess fuss a lot about um about wearing masks i'm so happy that you know that um asc students you know are um i like them i'm really proud of our of our school district yeah you know my own kids were kind of a litmus test for me when we announced that they were going back but they had to wear masks like oh all day but then you know they they were excited to see their friends and they got back in that environment and even though it's a long day and it's a little stifling and you know they 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 were willing to do that for the opportunity to be back in person. And I think, you know, that that's probably the case for a lot of students. And, and we certainly have students with, you know, certain physical disabilities or um, who receive special services for cognitive disabilities, who wearing a mask is more difficult for them. And, you know, IEP teams um, can certainly meet and make decisions that are appropriate for for those students. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll make, we'll kind of rule by exception there, uh, but the kind of going in policy for everybody else has got to have a mask on. Coming up next, Marty Lang talks about addressing students' mental health concerns and opposition to mask mandates from some members of the public. We'll be right back. Alaska Teen Media Institute is looking for youth to join our team. As a youth producer, you can conduct interviews like the one you're listening to right now, edit audio, record voiceovers, help write scripts, and much more. And all of that is paid work. So if you're between the ages of 13 and 24, living in Alaska, and interested in joining at me, go to alaskateenmedia.org join. You can also email us at news at alaskateenmedia.org. Now, back to Daisy's interview with Marty Lang. Like the polio and the chickenpox vaccine and other immunizations, which are required, you know, to get into these schools, how do you feel about requiring students to get um, the COVID nineteen vaccine? You know, I I know um, the limits of my education and background, um, and that is, I'm not a medical expert. <laughs> um, I'm an education expert, right? So, as a teacher, as a principal, um, you know, and I was, now I serve as a director. So, I I really lean heavily on my counterparts in our health services department to answer questions about that, you know, in terms of required, um, you know, we, we, we really do still want people to have, you know, some individual and family choice around that. Um, we would, 
be really encouraged if, if more folks were willing to get the vaccine, because we know that that just reduces the chance that we're going to be addressing, you know, individual positive cases in our school that could lead to secondary transmission. So, you know, really, if we can get to that, um, you know, that herd immunity that's talked about in the medical community, that would be great because it would allow us to really, I think, more and more set aside concerns about COVID and get back to the business of educating kids. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's um, it's still, uh, you know, a vaccine that's got emergency authorization um, you know, so for, for requiring students, I know we're just not in a, in a position yet where, where we're going to do that. What are some conversations with, you know, the directors and people in charge have been having about returning to this new school year, comparing from, from, you know, beginning of last year's school year from now? Yeah. So I started meeting with high school principals about the middle of July, um, they had taken about four weeks off. And so we started talking about like, okay, what's, what's different this year from last year? Uh, what's not different. And, you know, if we, we, like we talked about earlier, if we're returning to normal on a lot of fronts, they had a lot of questions. Principals had a lot of questions about that, you know? Um, well, does that mean we can really do this again? You know, can, can students, are we back to open lunch? Um, can we have homecoming? Uh, can we have spectators at, you know, at, at our sporting events? Can we do assemblies? You know, can we do new student orientation? So just lots of, of dialogue around, okay, you know, what is allowable and what maybe still do we need to um, not just return back to normal practices because we're, we still need to be cautious in those areas. And so one that your listeners might be interested in, we recently um, met with high school principals and we talked about dances, right? So normally most schools, high schools would be having a dance associated with homecoming in the fall. And um, collectively, the group of principals just felt like that was an environment that really didn't allow for any social distancing. If you've been to a high school dance, uh, you know, and, and recently, uh, there's a lot of kids crammed in a really small space, you know, shoulder to shoulder. And so um, that just didn't feel right yet. And so um, we're not going to do uh, dances um, yet this year. It doesn't mean we won't at some point. We're still hoping to preserve opportunities for maybe a midwinter dance, certainly for prom in the spring. But for homecoming, um, the principals made the decision, um, and you know, along with us here in secondary to offer, you know, some sort of in lieu of activity. We still want to do some kind of fun homecoming celebration um, in lieu of doing a dance. And so we provided some additional funding out of our budget here in secondary so that schools could figure out what's something else that they could do and offer students that would still, you know, allow them to come together and have fun and celebrate around their homecoming. So in terms of other conversations we're having, you know, we're looking at um, high school sports, um, you know, we talked about the mask uh, mandates earlier, um, you know, masks are not required outdoors, they remain optional. Um, and so for most of our fall sports that are outdoors, masks will not be required unless students want to wear them. Um, you know, we're still working on reminding coaches that, you know, keeping kids somewhat socially distanced when they're on the sidelines is still a good idea. Um, you know, frequent hand washing, cleaning of high touch equipment, things like that. Those are practices that we want to keep doing this year. Um, they're just a little less prescriptive than they were last year. Last year, we had things written into our mitigation plan where like volleyball practice had to stop every 15 minutes to wash all the balls, right? So now we're, 
we're easing up on that language and just saying things like it should be cleaned frequently, you know, but a little less, um, you know, prescriptive in, in how often. Last time you were on the podcast, um, you talked a little bit about addressing students' mental health concerns. At the time, students were largely doing classes only online. Can you talk about preparing to address students' mental health concerns for the up-and-coming school year, especially for most students? This is yet again another semester with COVID-19. Yeah, yeah. And we know that that, those stressors are real. Um, And, you know, all students have been affected. Um, but some really disproportionately, you know, this has been, um, you know, pretty difficult for their home life. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's part of our regular conversation around here as well. Um, you know, at summer school, uh, just to use this as an example, we don't normally hire a full-time counselor for summer school programs. We usually hire one for the first couple of days to get students enrolled in their classes and the last couple of days to make sure that they, they you know, passed and that they're grades get posted to their transcript accurately. But this last summer, at all six of our locations, we hired a full-time counselor um, just to be there, you know, to address the social emotional needs of kids um, right alongside their academic needs. And so I think our counseling teams, our administrators, our teachers are all aware that, you know, kids may be coming in um, struggling a little bit more you know, just to find kind of good, solid life foundation. And so, you know, doing those good relational moves in the classroom, connecting with kids, making sure kids are connecting with each other, um, referring them to the counselor for conversations when they're, when they're just struggling to, to maintain in the environment. I mean, our, I think that's going to be a part of our, you know, process going forward. Um, and, you know, we don't know entirely yet the scope of what that's going to look like. And so, Fortunately, we have, you know, funding from the federal government through the CARES Act um, and ESSER 2 and ESSER 3 funds that give us additional resources as the district. So if we identify a need that we can't address through our normal staffing situation in our schools, we might be able to bring additional resources and positions in to support students. And so, um, you know, we're, we're already doing some things and we kind of stand ready to watch and see what the need is and, and do more things if we need to. Yeah, that's amazing that um, that you have, you know, those additional funds and those additional, you know, people, you know, to be there for students. Can I talk about something else your listeners might be interested in? So we have a contract with a, a third party provider called Gaggle. And um, what Gaggle does is they look at all of the written material that is stored in like Google Docs and Google Sheets and Google Slides that we give students access to. And it has an algorithm that scans for you know, certain words or, or things of concern. And when it identifies um, you know, potential violent actions, suicidal ideation, threats against folks, um, you know, all of those kinds of um, cries for help potentially or potential threats to other students or self-harm, it flags those and it sends those to the administrator at that school. And so the, the point isn't to like snoop on things that kids are writing, um, but to identify those things that might be written that signal that somebody's not okay. And then that allows the administrator to go and have a non-disciplinary conversation with that student oftentimes to check in with them. And we've actually seen quite a few students who have, you know, type things about, I'm, 
I'm really thinking about harming myself. I'm, I'm thinking a lot about suicide. And the system was able to flag that. And then we were able to connect with that student's parents and that student to get them some resources and help to make sure they're okay. So I know that can feel a little bit creepy, like, wait, somebody's reading all my stuff. Um, but really, Gaggle is there to try to be that extra measure of protection that helps. It's our early warning system to make sure that we're, we're catching kids who need help. And I think that's really great that you guys have that system in place. Yeah. So I put that on kind of the menu of mental health things that we're doing for students um, on an ongoing basis, too. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been trying to balance, you know, these questions between students and also teachers. So how's ASD aiding, you know, the mental health of not only students, but teachers as well? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, through their contract with the district and through the, um, the medical plan that they have, um, they have what's called an employee assistance program. Um, so teachers have access to mental health resources um, free of charge. Um, they can access those in confidentiality, right? So, you know, we, our administrators are all aware of that. And if they see a staff struggling, sometimes they'll remind them that they have that resource available to them. Um, it was a difficult year for teachers, holy cow, and for counselors and for administrators. I mean, they worked harder than, you know, um, than they ever have before. And um, we, you know, we saw some more early retirements, um, we found it a little bit more difficult this year to find candidates to hire for certain positions. Um, there's no doubt that it was a stressful year and that some of that stress is going to continue on into this year. And so, um, yeah, we, you know, we want to make sure that staff are taking care of themselves. We want to make sure that principals are sensitive to the needs of their staff, um, you know, looking for those opportunities to provide a little bit of relief where they can. Um, you know, we're, we're not trying to pile on a bunch of new initiatives this year, uh, just sensitive to the fact that teachers are still learning how to, you know, navigate Canvas as a learning management system and how to create lessons that they can post online and, and you know, how to, to do interactive partner work with masks on and social distancing. And so um, you're, I, I really appreciate your question because it is one of those other conversations that we're having over here. How do we take care of our teachers, our counselors, our administrators, our nurses who are shouldering um, a huge responsibility and trying to keep education moving forward during these difficult times? Um, we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, heated conversations, you know, at the last um, school district's meeting. Um, and there's been a lot of heated opinions around the nation regarding mask mandates in schools. Many parents struggle with the idea of having their kids um, wear masks. And even um, Mayor Bronson urged ASD to reconsider students to wear masks in schools. How do you respond to the reaction of pub of the public opposing these requirements, whether they are elected officials or parents? Well, that's a big question, Daisy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, right. It's not just a local um, thing. This is something that's playing out you know, across the nation and really in countries around the world. And, um, you know, we, we want to be very careful intruding on people's individual freedoms. We also have a responsibility to create a safe environment for staff and students in the district. And so it's always, you know, a, there's always a tension between those two things and trying to balance those out. And, you know, there was a lot of factors that went into the superintendent's decision to require masks, but primarily it was 
the one thing that we felt we could do as a district that ensured safety for all students. And, um, you know, it's, it's tough for those folks who really want that individual freedom. I know that feels um, like a takeaway, you know, maybe an overreach on behalf of us as an organization, um, you know, and, and, and just have to acknowledge that that is the case. You know, if, if the decision had been made not to require masks, most certainly at the last board meeting, we would have had a large contingent of there saying, um, you, you made the wrong decision because I need you to require masks or I can't send my kid back to school. I don't feel safe. Right. So these are decisions where there's such a polarized split in our community that whichever decision got made, we knew we were going to ha- hear from a very vocal group on either side um, about the issue. Uh, what we've tried to do is create options for families, right? So um, if the idea of wearing a mask is um, you know, so difficult for a family that they don't wanna send their kid back in person, we have full virtual options for them. We've got homeschool options for them. And so we really try to be thoughtful in providing a continuum of, of educational services that hopefully will meet the needs of most families, right? So, you know, I encourage anybody who wants to hear more about those options, um, you know, to call our secondary office, to call the principal at their school, you know, connect with somebody in the district and we can help families navigate, you know, what are the op- menu of options that are available to them if they don't, if they're just not happy with the one that they're seeing right now. You know, I don't know, have, had we had this situation 20 years ago, uh, it would have been even more difficult because we don't, we didn't then have the really robust, rigorous online educational resources that we do now. You know, I look at the catalog of classes that students can take through Apex and through eDynamics, two of the vendors that we contract with. And there are some really cool courses that we would never be able to offer in our high schools and middle schools, but kids can take them online, right? So there's, there's, you know, there, it's just the, the time that we live in, fortunately, allows us to have some of those additional tools um, to meet the needs of, of families. Mm-hmm. I know we've been talking, you know, a lot about um, obviously this last question was pretty was pretty intense. And the last couple of questions about mental health. But um, what are you most looking forward to, you know, to the for the up and coming year? You know, one, just getting kids back in buildings. Um, the thing I miss most in, in being in my current job at the Ed Center is just being around the energy of kids. You know, I, that's what I loved as a as a high school teacher. That's what I loved as a high school principal. Right? Was that interaction with with teenagers? Um, and last year, even when we returned in person, my job kept me very mired down over here. And so I'm excited for kids to be back in buildings. I'm excited to be out, you know, in buildings and visiting and seeing that energy again. Um, I'm excited that we are able to do some of the more normal activities that really are important for the high school experience, you know, and for the middle school experience too. Um, you know, things like homecoming and, and middle school sports will be back, right? They, they took almost a whole year off last year. Um, so just all of those opportunities for kids to be in person, get good in-person learning and get supported in their academics, and then have all those extracurricular options available to them. You probably already knew this, Daisy, because you were an involved kid when you were in high school, but kids who participate in extracurricular activities have, on average, higher graduation rates, better attendance in school, 
higher GPAs. They do better on the SAT and ACT. They're less likely to drop out. They're less likely to um, get involved with drugs and alcohol. They're less likely to be suspended. Like all of the things that we measure, you know, when kids are involved in school and extracurricular activities, they do better on those metrics. And so this year, we're able to open up even wider the things that we can offer again to students. And it may require them to show up masked, but they get to show up again. And I think that's important uh, for their mental health, um, for their social connections, for their relational development, and for their academics. And so um, that's what I'm excited about. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. Well, um, well, thank you so much for um, for giving me this opportunity and to interview with you, to interview you, and you know, to connect again. Um, you know, I um, writing these questions, I got very nostalgic. You know, thinking about my time in Eagle River and you know all those activities that I did, and you know everything that I did, not only at Eagle River but also at um, King Technical High School. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for um, for taking the time out of your day. You bet, and I appreciate your questions and, and great interview. Thank you. That was At Me Senior Producer Daisy Carter speaking with Marty Lang, a Director of Secondary Education with the Anchorage School District. You've been listening to Podcast in Place, Youth Stories from Quarantine from Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music was composed by Devin Schreckengost, with additional music from Kendrick Whiteman. You can find these stories at alaskateenmedia.org, where we have included resources for youth in partnership with the State of Alaska Division of Behavioral Health. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people, whose land we work on. Many thanks to supporters of our podcast, including Della Cutchins, Spirit of Youth, and United Way of Anchorage. The views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of our sponsors. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. It's a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like Atme. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our series on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. And don't forget to check out our website, alaskateenmedia.org. There you can learn more about what our organization does, discover more youth-produced content, and find out how to get involved. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Zen Rogers. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there. We'll get through this together. <laughs>